everyone. Welcome to the Lifted Podcast. I'm your host, Helen Denham, and this is a place for us to talk about what we're doing every day to raise our vibration and understand ourselves more deeply as energetic beings and co-creators. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for being here. As always, I'm just so grateful for your presence, and uh, today's conversation is such an important one, so I'm really glad that you're tuning in. We have got Jordan Marie Daniel here with us, and she is an indigenous rights activist, and uh, she's working in Washington, D.C. currently on legislation and bringing visibility and drawing attention to what Native American communities need most right now on and off the reservations. And her work primarily focuses on eradicating racism and uh, increasing visibility for people who are underrepresented in the media. That also includes people of color and the LGBTQIA plus community and those with disabilities. So such a beautiful and important conversation that we're going to be having today. We talk about the epidemic of missing and murdered indigenous women and their relatives. Uh, We talk about her experiences at Standing Rock and what she's learning on Capitol Hill uh, surrounding legislation and just, you know, kind of pulling back the curtain there. We talk about what action we can take to get involved and support our Native American brothers and sisters. We talk about erasure that we're seeing in mainstream media. And uh, finally, we talk about the hope she has moving forward and how we can come together to support Native Americans uh, in particular. So lots of topics that we're going to be covering. Um, While you're listening, you can find Jordan on Instagram at native in underscore LA. And uh, she's absolutely amazing. And she gives us so many great resources in this episode as well. So thank you so much for being here. And as always, if you feel like a friend might benefit from this conversation while you're listening, please do send it along, share it on your socials and tag us. We always love to see what you're up to, what you're learning. And, um, I love you so much. Thank you for being here and enjoy this conversation. I'll talk to you on the flip side. The first question I always love to ask guests is how do you like to start your day off? Do you have any rising rituals or routines that you go to? Yeah, usually how I start my day is um, I'll try and be present in a few minutes of just laying in bed and enjoying the comfort of my partner and our two cats that are always laying like right on us or right against us mm-hmm. um, and just kind of savoring in that moment before the day starts because usually my day is just packed with meetings and calls and just multiple projects that are happening all throughout the day and then I like to start with breakfast and having coffee and just trying to set hopefully a calm tone that can like stay throughout the day Um, but usually that's my ritual. Beautiful. And I know you're busy. I've been stalking you on Instagram and checking out what's been going (laughs) on. And every day you've got something new going on and you're collaborating with so many amazing people. So for those of us who might not be familiar with your work yet, can you just give us a little rundown of what your journey, I guess, over the last few years has looked like up until now? (laughs) That might take the whole hour. (laughs) Um, That's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, basically... You know, I've known since eighth grade that I wanted to be an advocate for Indigenous peoples, Native communities here, and just seeing, you know, multiple perspectives, you know, starting my life out in my community, at my tribe, being around my family and culture and language and traditions and ceremonies. 
um, that stayed with me, um, even though I was only part of that for the first nine years of my life. And then we moved to Maine and that was a big culture shock and being in a community that didn't look like me and it really made it very abundantly clear that I'm different. And just that's where I experienced racism for the first time. I experienced a hate crime for the first time. Um, you know, so at an, a young age, I felt like I had a pretty good um, grasp on how people are treated who are different. Um, and so being in that community and experiencing this and feeling really ashamed about who I was, uh, and then going back to South Dakota during the summers to visit my families, um, I started seeing the racism there and seeing how indigenous peoples are really being treated um, and wondering, you know, maybe my parents did a really good job at trying to protect me from that when we were there, but I'm just like, this didn't just happen. Um, this has probably always been present. And, you know, because I got to be with my own community, I guess I really didn't experience that. Um, so that kind of really motivated me into having that dream in eighth grade of, I want to go to DC, I want to be an advocate, I want to lobby on the Hill, I want to make um, long lasting, impactful change for, for Native people. So for me, that meant, you know, um, legislation and making sure that Indigenous voices are present in the development of um, that legislation and making sure that, you know, our rights and our sovereignty are, are being respected and seen and hopefully building a, a collaborative communication network between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples um, so that way we can start having these discussions because I felt like you know, there's a lot of misinformation about Indigenous peoples. We kind of are talked about in a more past, um, you know, contents rather than present. And we're still here and dealing with a lot of cultural appropriation and all of that kind of stuff. I felt like there was a narrative out there about us that wasn't written by us. So then it doesn't help you have education systems that are um, kind of perpetuating this whitewash education about Indigenous peoples. So that was my dream. And eventually, you know, that came true. I, I had the opportunity to move to DC in 2013 and started advocating and working with National Indian Health Board and um, was an intern for Congresswoman Shelley Pingree. Then I started working at Administration for Native Americans um, because my experience on the Hill wasn't that great. Um, there was a lot of privilege. There was a lot of, um, I felt lack of care for being on the Hill and trying to make that impactful change because I was, I was there in those hearings and those information briefings um, about issues that are impacting not just indigenous communities but so many um, and it felt like the people there that were other interns just didn't care and just listening to them make comments of their dad wiring them money or you know they bought a condo for their kid and i'm struggling working two low-end minimum wage jobs not even full-time trying to make ends meet to have this opportunity of an unpaid internship um, was just really disheartening and so it just made me want to center on being able to just work with communities directly. And so that's what led me to administration for Native Americans. Um, and then, you know, I got to cheer on our communities and not just always focus on the traumas and the bad that was happening, but also focusing on the good, like all of the programs to revitalize our indigenous language, uh, languages to, you know, program business development programs. Um, it's just incredible things that our communities are doing that doesn't, I feel like it doesn't get talked about as much. Um, so it was really great to be, you know, like a, I was like a grants manager um, of their project. So it was really great to be in that cheerleading role and being there to help them 
um, from the moment that their grant gets accepted by ANA to the moment, um, you know, the last day of their project for either it was a one-year project or up to a five-year project. Um, so that was really great. I got to visit those communities, uh, got to learn a whole bunch more. And simultaneously, I was attending marches and rallies to stop the pipelines, to stop KXL and learning from other indigenous advocates and allies that have been in this environmental justice space, speaking to these issues and speaking about indigenous rights and treaty rights and sovereignty and um, just the lack of tribal consult, meaningful tribal consultation in those processes uh, where indigenous voices weren't included. So I started showing up, started learning more about it. And I was just like, I never wanna be a community organizer. Like I saw the long hours and just all of the work that went into it wasn't that I'm not afraid of hard work, but it was just that different kind of like stress that I don't do well with because I'm very like I'm anxious and I deal with a lot of anxiety. Um, so I'm just like, I'll just show up always in the volunteer role. I'll help support, do whatever I can. Um, but that all changed with Standing Rock and the Dakota Access Pipeline. So now my life has really kind of come up against a reevaluation of what I'm doing for my communities and had me asking a lot of like, how are you going to be a better relative? How are you going to be a good future ancestor? And how how can you be showing up more or in a different way that is has better impact? So seeing the youth run 2,000 miles to DC, I had the opportunity to organize my first ever like run rally protest and dealt with the permits and the police escorts and all of that. Still like super stressed, super anxious, and was like I don't, I can't operate this way. But it was really um, inspiring to do that. It was really inspiring to create a platform for our youth to speak to this issue, who, who they cared so much about, um, and preventing this pipeline and protecting our water and protecting our peoples and our next generations and everyone who lives along those waterways, not just Indigenous peoples. And at the end of the day, I was like, I'm never doing that again. Um, gave it a try. And then sadly, you know, so, uh, my grandfather was dying simultaneously from cancer and then he passed away a couple days after that. And that was the last thing he knew that I was doing, you know, in my life. And one of the last things he was, you know, coherently able to like speak to me still about. And he was my biggest role model. I'm a fourth generation runner. He took me on my first run um, and he inspired me so much in how to give back into community because he was always so devoted to them. Uh, really for our Native youth, supporting them in, in sports and everything, health and wellness. So when he passed away, I was kind of at this crossroads of giving up kind of on kind of like just life and the things that I was doing, um, feeling really confused, feeling this big loss of my role model. Um, but I, I kind of channeled it into how he would go about things and felt, you know, this is how he gave back and supporting our youth and supporting our next generations and I need to do that too. And, and part of me, like that was part of my healing was becoming an advocate and organizer, speaking behind a, a microphone or um, a bullhorn, speaking on stages, even though I hate public speaking and it makes me sick to my stomach still. But it, it was, that was my way to cope with this loss and to how I could heal. But it also gave life to something new um, and something that I felt like I had purpose in, in cultivating community in a meaningful way to center indigenous voices 
Um, so I started organizing more and I started, you know, collaborating with other community members, uh, making sure that other organizations were centering Indigenous voices and speaking about these issues. And that's what led to the birth of, of Rising Hearts, you know, that came out of the Standing Rock movement and that call to action for making sure we are present and we are visible on those spaces. So, so much of that work has come from then. Um, and that's how I became an organizer. And it was kind of by, I think it was on, obviously, like, I think it was on purpose, but at the time, it kind of just felt like an accident. I was kind of um, rolling with the punches of how things were going. Um, but it's something that I don't ever regret. And I'm so blessed and grateful that, you know, this, this path um, presented itself and uh, that I'm on this path right now. And, and it's just led to so much advocacy and collaboration, intersectional um, efforts, not just with Indigenous communities, but so many. And so that's been my journey to, um, you know, the work that I'm doing and how I've become an advocate and an organizer um, that has crossed over into running as well. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the story. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for sharing that with us, Jordan. I mean, there's so much I want to touch on with you, but I know that your grandfather would be so proud of you, especially since you're, it seems like you're facing a lot of discomfort and fears with public speaking and doing this work. And I know that that must not be easy, but you're still doing it. And um, you're setting such an amazing example, not just for your community, but for, you know, people like myself or people that are just tuning into your work to figure out how we can all be of service as well. Um, I have a personal curious question for you. When you were in Standing Rock, um, did you ever meet a guy named Dennis? He went by Chumash. I know there were a lot of people there. Yeah, yeah. I don't think so. I was so surprised. It was like a city, but he was my housemate recently. And so I learned so much about Standing Rock. But I'd love to ask you about your experience there. And um, what is the update now with the pipeline? Yeah, so, um, you know, my best friend and I at the time uh, went with my little nephew to go to Standing Rock. Um, it was the very spur of the moment. It was right a couple weeks after the dog attacks had happened. And that's, that was also one of the very igniting um, motivators that had me ask those questions. How are you going to be a better relative? How can you show up better? Um, and continuing my grandfather's legacy of seeing those youth that I had met and helped organize for and take care of when they were in DC, um, seeing them being attacked and seeing how they were being treated just really kind of was like, you know, the tip of the iceberg, the last straw. And um, that's also what motivated me to go on this path. So, um, you know, we went to a, a Standing Rock rally in DC and got to hear Bernie Sanders, got to hear Tarahowska. Um, of Honor of the Earth and um, Jocelyn Charger, who is part of the International Indigenous Youth Council and so many other Indigenous voices um, in hearing them. And, and that just is like, I want to go. I'm like, I can't take off that much work, but um, let's just go. Let's get as much funds and donations that we can bring as possible. And so we just drove all throughout the night and got there um, into Standing Rock and stayed with at the Koli Chasha camp, which is my, my tribe's um, little encampment there. And I would say we focus more on community rather than being on the front line uh, at some of the actions that were happening and trying to stop these, um, you know, some of these uh, bulldozers and, and all of that stuff and interactions with law enforcement and the military, uh, because I had a seven and a half year old nephew with me and um, I didn't want to put him in danger. So we, we stayed on the community aspect of everything. And I think that is something that doesn't get told enough is everyone saw 
all of the images of the attacks and all of that was happening, which is powerful and seeing the solidarity and nonviolent actions that are happening from the allies and water protectors, you know, is, I think will set a precedent and has set a precedent of how we can um, try and stop these sturdy infrastructure projects from happening. But I saw community, I saw people chopping wood for each other, delivering it to each other. People were checking in if they had their water, if they had their snacks, the community kitchen and all of the cooks were absolutely incredible. Um, and all of the donations that were coming in constantly was just so amazing to see and really felt like indigenous peoples are for once finally being seen and being heard. And, you know, that support was felt from all over the world and pulling into the encampment alone into Acheti Shikowi, you know, seeing all of the nation flags um, going down the road was so beautiful and powerful to that, you know, we had over 500 flags nations um, there showing their support. And so, uh, just seeing that was just really inspiring and humbling and um, just motivating. So we were there, we helped chop wood, we helped deliver it, we helped unload the trucks. Um, we also participated in like a basketball tournament for my nephew. They they made sure all of the youth were, all, were being part of community events and like something fun. And so they hosted this, you know, basketball tournament and had some amazing speakers. And so um, my nephew got to be part of that. And the best thing was falling asleep every single night, you know, for the few nights we were there to the, the singing and the drums. And every night there was like, kind of like a little mini powwow and, um, you know, just being near the drums and hearing them was so healing um, and it was good medicine. And yeah, it was just so awesome to fall asleep in the teepee um, to that every night. And then waking up in the morning and hearing my nephew, you know, peek, say these words as he's peeking out of, of the teepee of like, you know, why can't we live this way again? And just seeing his eyes open and like having this connection was just really incredible to watch and, and like witness in his presence. Like he, he's just, our, our youth are so innocent, but they also are very in tune to what's going on and they also know what's right. And so just hearing him say these things and speaking about these injustices happening in such a way where you know he shouldn't be talking about these things he should be enjoying his life um was just really again inspiring to see and something i think we can work towards and how we can have people reconnect back to the lands how we can um really emphasize that importance of you know indigenous caretaking and stewardship and how we have all a responsibility um, and an opportunity to reconnect to those lands and how we can care for them so that our next generation, so that he um, and, our, and our next ones to come have a beautiful, thriving environment um, that is caring for not just the people, but every living entity that is part of Unchimaka, Grandmother Earth. So Standing Rock was incredible. And I wrote a blog about it, of my experience and shared pictures. And, you know, I really tried to emphasize the community aspect because that's something that just wasn't as visible um, in the media. So I think that was just something that really showed that we can unify, we can come together. It sucks that it has to take these, you know, injustices and these issues to bring us together. But the way people mobilized and activated so quickly and in the hundreds of thousands and millions around the world was just so amazing. And um, I really wish that, that continued because sadly, um, as I'm always kind of like a skeptic or I don't know, I, I think because of experiences in my life, I was just like, 
are you all still going to be here a year from now? Are you all still going to be here five years from now? Are we, are you still going to be fired up and talking about this 10 years from now? Are you going to show up at the next pipeline fight? You know, you have Kinder Morgan, you have Stop Line 3, um, you have all of these other um, environmental fights by indigenous communities that they're fighting for. You have Pine Mountain, um, you have the border wall, the happening down in Cunye land down near San Diego and the border. Um, and, you know, so many other uh, places that these fights are happening, Protect Oak Flat, you have Chaco Canyon, um, Bears Ears. And so are you all still going to show up in, in the same way? And, you know, I think that died down, sadly. Um, I would love to see that support stay continued. And I really hope, um, you know, through conversations like this and people hearing about these other fights going on, that like we need that solidarity, we need that support, we need that elevation um, and centering of our voices and lived experiences to speak to these issues so that way people know how they can show up and, and be called in as an ally and a co-conspirator. And yeah, I think, what was your next question? Oh, just the update on where Standing Rock oh, is yeah. now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the update has kind of just been like back and forth. Um, Recently, the youth, again, just ran to Washington, D.C. I think it was April 24th, around end of April, um, I believe. And they were trying to oppose the pipeline again um, and tell President Biden and this administration to stop the permits, to look into an environmental impact um, statement and really look at the history of what the Constitution says, that treaties are the most supreme law of the land. And these projects are infringing on that right. And that's kind of where the status is. It's going to be held up in course, which is a reason why I chose to stay in DC because I was ready to go and live up in Standing Rock. I really wanted to. Um, my parents and some community members in DC convinced me to stay because, um, as much as, you know, sadly, the trauma that was happening and the violence that was happening up there. Sadly, the decisions were going to be made in DC in those courts. So um, I tried to amplify what was happening in Standing Rock in DC so that it could hopefully pressure the courts, pressure Army Corps, pressure the Department of Justice, pressure Congress um, so that they can make a better informed and respectful decision um, that is honoring Indigenous peoples and our history and um, our bodies today. Uh, so that was a really hard decision to make, but I'm actually really grateful um, that people did uh, convince me to stay because we started organizing like rally after rally, march after march, panel after panel. Um, we co-founded some other coalitions that were working with DC to try and get them to defund from fossil fuels um, and get them to work towards public banking um and just amazing uh, other amazing efforts that was really centered on cultivating community and having us being able to talk to each other and work together collaboratively so i think that was probably another best <laughs> decision i ever made um and you know i it, it was fulfilling because we had those moments of win where they announced that it wasn't going to happen or that they're going to look further into it. and then you know, with the next administration, um, you know, the prior one, uh, they approved it on day four um, mm. into into their presidency. And um, yeah, it was just really disappointing uh, after all of that work that went into it. And so that it's, it's happened again. We need to tell President Biden and this administration that we need to look to other, you know, 
pathways of how we will have energy and being able to take care of our people and how can we become not dependent or at least less dependent and take baby steps to not being dependent on fossil fuels what can we be doing um, and we need to make sure that those practices are you know sustainable and done in you know respectful ways because we also don't want to be putting up tons of wind wind panels and or in solar that's going to be at the expense of other potential indigenous and marginalized communities that it could be harming on or displacing um, so it's figuring out a, a big plan of how we go about that and um, yeah so right now it's just kind of like stalled at yeah. the moment but i would highly suggest anyone listening um, to definitely go to Indian collective to indigenous environmental network um, and they put on incredible campaigns. They also are the ones that helped with the, the youth run that just happened to DC again. Um, and they provide a lot of updates as well as Seeding Sovereignty to and International Indigenous Youth Council because they were founded in Standing Rock um, and began their work there. So I would definitely um, stay in tune to those organizations and um, keep up with the updates. Can you repeat the name of that website again? I'll write it down. Yeah, so it's Indigenous Environmental Network. Gotcha. And NDN, NDN Collective. Mm -hmm. And then you have Seeding Sovereignty. Awesome. And then International Indigenous Youth Council. Awesome. I'll put that all in our description below too, so that people can easily find that. But um, are you feeling optimistic with this shift into this new administration with Biden? Are you seeing like a little traction for your causes or how are you feeling in DC in general? Yeah, I I would say that I'm always hopeful. I have to be hopeful because I really want what's best for our next generations. And I think we have seen some movement, but we also haven't seen any sort of movement on other issues. And so I would love to see holistically movement forward on all of these causes and issues that so many communities are fighting for um, that need to be addressed. But I do feel like we are starting to get some attention. It helps when you have Secretary Deb Haaland um, as the Department of Interior Secretary. Um, so having that representation in, an, in a department, in, in an institution that literally was founded off the basis of eradicating indigenous peoples and having you know, past um, interior secretaries publicly say that they want to eradicate indigenous people. So having her in that space and setting a new precedent and someone who is very knowledgeable about issues like missing and murdered indigenous women and relatives issues of land back and what indigenous treaties are and sovereignty means um, indigenous stewardship and caretaking so having her in that role and in that leadership is absolutely incredible and i can only imagine you know how vocal that she is going to be with this new administration and then you know the implementation and creation of the white house environmental justice council um, we have three Indigenous peoples on that council, and um, I'm a council member with Intersectional Environmentalists, and we had a meeting with this council um, to help give our input, and because they were collecting comments and suggestions and kind of like a roadmap of what needs to be proposed and what needs to be discussed with this administration um, in briefing points to the president. Um, and so we have a very last minute meeting with them, but I also always like to speak to Environmental injustice um, isn't just about rising sea levels and um, you know displacement and, and so much more. It also needs to be about 
missing and murdered indigenous women and girls and relatives in connection to these fossil fuel in connection to the fossil fuel industry um, because these pipelines have man camps these man camps house the workers and not to say all the workers are awful people um, but there are predators within those networks and this has led to the high high crime rates of um, human drug sex trafficking this has led to um, high rates of rape sexual assault um, and domestic violence and just hearing at that first rally I ever went to in DC, um, reject and protect, stop the KXL pipeline, hearing an indigenous woman speak about her experience saving and rescuing an eight-year-old girl fleeing those man camps in North Dakota was just heartbreaking. Mm. And um, but that wasn't the first time. So when we talk about what climate justice looks like in the climate crisis, we need to also talk about the epidemic and of, of missing and murdered indigenous women and relatives. We need to talk about um, the violence and displacement that is happening to communities of color that are often time more often more than not like near these um, infrastructure projects and how these are also being um, you know proposed or built along marginalized communities. So that has led to a lot of injustice. That has led to a lot of um, you know health inequality and inequity what you have in Flint Michigan is, is a great example um, and we need to start talking about how this isn't just about profit this is capitalism at its finest at the expense of people's bodies and their own health and we need to talk about people's safety when we talk about what climate justice is mm, yes thank you for touching on that I know that's such a pillar of what you're focusing on right now especially with um, missing and murdered indigenous women. Um, I took a road trip across the country to get out to California from New York. And as I was stopping along the way in South Dakota and, and Sedona, Arizona, I kept hearing like whisperings of this. I had not seen it at all um, in media or in the news at all, but I kept hearing, you know, that women were going missing. Um, can you give us a little clarification around that? Like, is it a number of things? Um, that are contributing to them going missing and, and being hurt? Or is it like a ring? Like what is attributing to this? Yeah, so um, this is a culmination of a lot of factors that are contributing to this violence and the silencing. Um, you know, me and hundreds of others will say this violence has been going on since 1492, since the arrival of colonial, uh, white settler colonials. and genocide that has come from it, Gen um, enslavement of indigenous peoples. And, you know, this has also led to a troubling history of, um, you know, indigenous injustice, indigenous violence, indigenous genocide um, that was part of the foundation of this country, as well as the foundation of this country being built by black folks, by the black communities, by our, the black ancestors who, um, you know, really made what we see as America today even possible at the expense of our communities. Um, and so this is a culmination of a different of a bunch of different things. This is because, um, you know, I feel like even just personal, it, it's because I feel like our lives are more expendable, that we are not valued, that this mindset that was created um, in these whitewashed textbooks and education systems kind of paint us as, you know, people of the past and not belonging in the present, that we are more desired um, that we, um, because you have cultural appropriation, you have the Pocahontas costumes, you have um, the 
and from those hyper, uh, Pocahontas costumes, you have the hypersexualization and fetishization of Native women. You also see this within the Asian community. You also see this within the Black community. Um, and when those fantasies, those fetishes, aren't enough anymore, people act on those fantasies, and that's at the expense of predators acting that scene out on our women, on our relatives, on our community, and. It's because of, you know, jurisdictional loopholes that people know about. We, we have a, a term, um, you know, there's a, a short film out about it called open season, but that's literally a coined term, open season. People know that they can get away with crime, certain kinds of crime, that they can get away um, with these kinds of violent acts and that they won't be, that they can't be prosecuted and charged um, on tribal land. And so, tribes are really restricted in how they can, um, you know, prosecute non-Indigenous offenders. And sadly, I want to say too, you know, it's not just non-Indigenous peoples that are harming, um, you know, our, our women and our relatives. You know, sadly, it's even within our own community. We have a lot of intergenerational trauma that has been passed down. We have our relatives and ancestors who either were taken by the boarding school, they experienced rape, molestation, even murder. Um, and you have those stories that have been passed down generation to generation. We still have relatives today who were kind of in that last era of those boarding schools. Um, and that's a lot of trauma that has led to sadly, you know, our, our, our relatives taking their lives that has led to them continuing these forms of violence on their own relatives. And not to say that's an excuse because hurting anyone is, you know, not acceptable at all, but I understand you know, why this has continued and why this is even happening indigenous on indigenous violence. Um, so that is something that we also need to address is this intergenerational trauma and how can we begin to heal our communities? How can we have our men um, be in better leadership roles to actually take care and um, defend our women? But then we also need to address this from the outside perspective of people knowing about these jurisdictional loopholes, people having these fantasies. Um, when you have decades of propaganda, you know, like our First Nations communities in Canada, you know, they were part of, um, you know, these, our youth were taken, stolen from their families and put in, you know, bulletins and magazines and basically selling these kids. And they were, um, you know, priced higher, the welfare system, you know, social services uh, could make a lot more money on off of an Indigenous kid than any other kid, um, and that they were more desired. And so, we also have to talk about that too, and um, that is still happening today. And so it's just a lot of contributing factors that really kind of all intersect, um, but it's because this violence isn't just happening on reservations, this violence is happening in indigenous and rural communities. Um, a majority of indigenous peoples live off the reservation. Um, so, you know, if you reference the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls report by Urban Indian Health Institute that came out in November of 2018, that was the first kind of ever of its kind that really focused on um, 71 selected cities that showed these, you know, high rates. 2016 alone, they had 5,712 um, reported missing Indigenous women and girls, and only 116 were logged into the Department of Justice database. Oh um, so you see the lack of um, care and support from the government. They have a federal trust responsibility to support indigenous communities and, and sovereign nations. And that's what we are. Our nations, our tribes are sovereign. Um, they, they deem us that, but yet 
we don't have the power to do um, what we can with our own sovereignty. And so there's, you know, a lack of accountability and a lack of justice coming from the federal government. There is a lack of allocation of resources and money being able to go in to support um, the amazing organizations and programs that are providing services for survivors, providing services for safe housing, providing services to support the families who have lost a loved one, and doing so much work. Um, and then you also have law enforcement that are contributing to this issue. You have racism that is very part of all of this, interconnected, white supremacists. Um, you have that racism within law enforcement that will assume when a family comes to them saying, hey, our loved one is missing. They'll be like, oh, they're just out drunk. Oh, they're out just doing this. Oh, it's because of this. They'll be back in a couple of days or because they've had a history of maybe running off for a couple of days, they'll just use that and not take it seriously. Um, and so those first couple of days and even first few hours are absolutely critical in trying to find your loved one. So it's at the expense of families, sadly, having to mobilize their own family, working through this anxiety and stress and worry um, and emotions having to try and search for their loved one. And sometimes, sadly, it's their, their family that finds their loved one when, the, when law enforcement should have. Um, and sometimes they're deceased, sadly. And so um, it's that lack of support coming from law enforcement being definitely not informed about indigenous peoples. And so some of the um, legislation that's being proposed, like Not Invisible Act, Savannah's Act, Hannah's Act, are all working to increase the databases so that we can accurately reflect our loved ones um, working to try and implement trainings and programmings to help eradicate the racism that exists within law enforcement, um, but also making sure that when law enforcement officers are you know, writing a report of someone missing, if they're not careful and they don't check the box Native American or American Indian, Alaska Native, however it might be listed, if they don't check that, it'll default to Caucasian depending on the department and how these reporting systems are, are up, that's how our relatives go missing yet again. And so as Anita Lucchesi said um, of Sovereign Bodies Institute and in the report of Urban Indian Health Institute, our relatives go missing three times in life, in data, and in the media. So that makes this fight three times harder. Um, when we should be just focusing all our efforts on just our loved one and finding them, we also have to like mobilize and get media to show up and talk about this um, and sadly, it just does not get the visibility, even with the one day a year that we can prepare for and create events like May 5th, which is Hannah Harris's birthday. Um, sadly, she was murdered in 2013, but her family and National Indigenous Women's Resource Center and many other advocates have continued her legacy in making May 5th the National Day of Awareness for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Relatives. Um, so not only is she, that's her legacy continuing, but she's also creating an incredible um, you know, day and opportunities for other loved ones to be included in this, to be um, hopefully visible to the stories of their loved ones that have survived and are still fighting for them and all of the advocacy that goes into it. Um, but sadly, even just like this year, uh, we couldn't even get a day to do all of this work without having it being impacted by Instagram or Facebook, however they want to blame it, on a technical glitch and an, a software update that completely erased, I would say, 90% of all of the work that went into May 5th mm -hmm. um, on May 6th. That's what we woke up to was all of our posts being gone. And by the time they restored it, you know, probably 13, 14 hours later, much of our stuff was lost. 
still because it had exceeded the 24 hour limit. Um, so that was really disheartening to see and having this sort of censorship and erasure is, you know, causing trauma. I felt so bad for the families because it takes so much strength to have to continuously talk about your loved one. Or if you haven't for a while and you're showing up on May 5th or the days leading up to it to speak about them and then to have your own voice silenced, speaking up for your silenced loved one was just so heartbreaking to see and to hear. And May 6th should have been a day for so many to decompress and to process and to heal because May 5th was a day of mourning. It was like a memorial for so many communities collectively for allies to be in that space to learn more about this issue and how to show up. Um, and allies were even impacted by this. Their posts were erased. And even when they weren't tagged MMIW or some of the words, um, their, their content was gone. And it was just really, really heartbreaking to see all of those hours and days of planning and just the beautiful artwork or the solidarity posts just gone and it just felt like we can't even have a day to speak about in the injustice we're experiencing amongst the other conversations of injustice that's happening within the black communities and within the Asian communities, what's happening in Palestine, what's happening in Colombia, what's happening in so many different areas of the world. Um, but this is also not uncommon. You know, Black Lives Matter movement experienced this last summer with a lot of their posts and content being deleted. Um, you have, um, you know, some of my Muslim friends were speaking out yesterday saying that a lot of their content was being erased as they were showing support for their family members or friends that are in Palestine. Um, and just, just so much loss that so many people are experiencing when we're trying to use this platform to raise awareness about something. Um, so it's just, it's really disheartening and it, it makes you have such a bad feeling about social media, but it's at the same time, it's literally our biggest tool that we have um, our, our biggest platform for us to be able to control our own narrative about what's happening. Um, but yeah, May 6th was all about focusing on who can I reach out to? How can I create a space for us to share about our thoughts? How I need to contact all of the media people that I know to get people's voices to speak out about this and to demand accountability from Facebook or Instagram. Um, and you know, they're, they're apology wasn't even really an apology. It was really gaslighting saying that millions of others experienced this, but mm -mm. it was just, it wasn't good enough. And my, my call out to them, as I've been saying is how about you donate to the organizations that all organize something? Um, you know, you have Sovereign Bodies Institute, National Indigenous Women's Resource Center, Restoring Ancestral Winds, Seeding Sovereignty, Rising Hearts, like so many organizations um that we're also trying to fundraise too and so with those with that content gone we may have missed out on potential donations that could have come in um and i and i know they're a big tech company i know they can afford it so my call out to them is how do you fix this is one you can donate back into the programming that you silenced um and do better yep yeah that day was pretty horrifying i mean I remember seeing somebody's post about it and like every post that they put up that day would was still there. So it, it wasn't a glitch because it was only specifically the post that they had put out um, in that in memorial for what was going on. So, I mean, yeah, exactly. Like you said, it just continues this uh, circuit of trauma. So I guess my, my question for you is how are you and your community transmuting this trauma and how are you talking to like your nephew and the children in your life to help them you know, walk through life um, 
strong and confident, but also understanding where they came from. Like, how do you balance that conversation and move forward a little bit? Yeah, it's always about being transparent. And we do need to give space and attention to how we talk about this. And we do need to talk about it realistically. But we also need to create space of, okay, how, how can we process this in a healthy way that we're not continuing to carry this, that it's not going to impact us. And trust me, that is something I am still learning. Um, as I've been intersecting my running with my prayer runs for MMIW and MMIR, um, it's a whole learning process. But it's being intentional and creating space to talk about this in, a, in hopefully a, the safest way possible. Um, but also always ending it with hope, always ending it with resilience and strength, because that's literally what is going to get us to the next day. Um, we could continuously talk about all of the injustice and the trauma and just sit within that. Um, but that's not going to do our next generations any good if we continue to carry and pass this on. So we need to really look at ourselves individually. How can we process it in a safe way? How can we understand it? Um, how can we deal with potential the trauma or the triggers? Um, and how can we do it where we are strong enough? I don't know what that means, like what it means for moving forward, but how can we do that when we're strong enough so that we don't pass it on to our next generations? Um, how can we collectively as communities work on this trauma and process it together and understand it? But that all leads to dismantling a lot of things within our community that continuously keep us down, that keep us experiencing this trauma. We need to address it in government, state, local. We need to, um, you know, dismantle white supremacy. We need to try and eliminate racism because a lot of the time it comes down to the racism that we're experiencing and how we're being treated, how we're being viewed, how we're not being visible and how we're not being respected as individuals. Um, and so it's, it's really hard because it's so much that has to happen all at once. You can only do so much as an individual or as, you know, for your nephew, I can try my best to take care of him and protect him. But also I need to be honest with him about what's going on in our world. I need, he needs to understand, um, sadly, that he's a walking target, that his life is definitely going to be different. Um, but that's what we are, the adults, you know, are trying to do is like dismantle all of these systems, get communities talking about this, getting allies who are not part of these communities who have, who carry a certain privilege to start really thinking about this, to talk to companies, um, you know, how can they do better within their justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion efforts. When we talk about the outdoor running community, how can we make sure that Runner safety is absolutely critically important, but especially for people of color. We do not need another Ahmad Arbery being gunned down um, and his life taken by white supremacists. We need some of the laws in place, um, like stand your ground laws and stuff like that. Like we need some of these laws to be gone because they are literally killing people. Um, and it's protecting the people who are committing um, this act of violence, really. Um, we need to you know, rethink how we move forward with our education. Like I said, a lot of the textbooks about indigenous peoples are whitewashed. Um, we need to make sure that we actually have indigenous curriculum in there. We need to actually have, you know, indigenous and black voices, you know, who are teachers or who are authors or, um, you know, journalists, reports, anything, publication, being part of that curriculum because um, we need to have our country know the truth. 
we need to have them come to terms with the foundation of this country. You know, that I know I get this a lot, you know, some people have reached out to me saying like, I, I feel really bad, you know, about what's happening. Um, I know my ancestors did this and like, we can't treat everyone like they're their ancestor who came over to these lands and stole them and caused all of the trauma, uh, harm and trauma. But for them to acknowledge that, but say, I don't want this to continue with my own family. How can I stop this right here and now? And how can I show up and stand in solidarity with you? How can I be fighting with you as a co-conspirator um, and, and really be in this with you to support you and elevate you um, and be part of the dismantling, to be part of the unlearning and relearning of how we move forward in life. Um, so it's, it's a variety of things. It can be overwhelming, mm -hmm. um, but it's really just about having these conversations. And I think the more we do, more podcasts that happen, the more discussions of these voices being centered to speak about these lived experiences, I think will really open up a whole, um, a whole new, I guess, perspective for so many people that may have been just misinformed, who may have been ignorant, or may just not, you know, believe in any of this stuff, but it may take one podcast or one panel or opportunity to hear these that may give us a whole new outlook on how we have seen the world um, till now. Mm -hmm. I especially appreciate that you're touching on education as well. And it seems like there's, you know, a two part educate yourself and then figure out how to take action. So are there any like films or documentaries that come to mind that you would recommend our community watch if they're just, you know, in need of more information? Yeah, yeah. So if anyone wants to go to risingheart.org forward slash MMIR, um, that is a great resource where we're trying to compile as many things for people to learn more about these issues, um, especially for missing murdered Indigenous relatives. So we have, um, you know, we have stats there, we have reports there, we have past recorded, um, you know, panels that were recorded from May 5th and before May 5th. We have podcasts, we have books that you can read about, we have um, just so many resources, t-shirts you can purchase to help be in support and those funds will be supporting um, incredible advocates and organizations. Um, but yeah, for, I guess, books to read, the great one would be, you know, The Highway of Tears. And it's a true story of racism and difference in the pursuit of justice for missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. Um, it's by Jessica McDiarmid. Um, and this is also an injustice that's happening in Canada with our First Nations. And definitely want to give space that they, I would say, are the ones that kind of really began this movement for missing and murdered Indigenous women. Um, this began back like in the 70s when their relatives are going missing off of Highway 16, Highway of Tears, and them really calling attention to this and pressuring the Canadian government to um, conduct, you know, an inquiry to put out a report and to have this be documented and getting testimonies from families that are, that are speaking out about this. Um, and so, I would say this became a movement before the hashtag that everyone knows of MMIW, um, or maybe before even the label of missing and murdered indigenous women. But I would say they really like began this movement. Um, and it's, you know, come down into the States where they're doing work collaboratively. Um, and this is also an injustice that is happening, you know, to our Southern relatives that this violence isn't confined to colonial borders. But that would be a great book in terms of just understanding the scope of this, this issue 
and how these systems are failing Indigenous families and our lost relatives. Um, you have Stolen Sisters, the story of two missing girls, their families, and how Canada has failed Indigenous women. You have the Red River Girl, the life and death of Tina Fontaine. Um, you have Kwe, standing with our relatives um, in my own moccasins, a memoir of resilience. Um, and then, you know, you have the Red Justice Project for on the podcast, which is really great. A new podcast that just came out with Connie Walker. Um, it's called Stolen. It's on Spotify. It's a search for Jermaine Charlo. Um, you have her other um, podcast that's on um, CBC Originals, uh, Missing and Murdered, Finding Cleo and Alberta Williams. You have Not Invisible podcast by Red House Series, Native Women on the Front Lines. You have Blood River that shows the connection between violence of the earth, against the earth and peoples, and Bertha Caceres. Um, she was an indigenous advocate, really trying to stop these dirty infrastructure projects from happening in her own community, and sadly, she was assassinated. Um, For the Wild has hosted a couple um, podcast episodes, including one with me, Running in Prayer, um, and then the other one, Funding Fossil Fuels and the Femicide with Roxanne White and Rachel Heaton on that. Um, and then you also have a couple episodes with Crime Junkie. Um, they have the Highway of Tears episode, they have Women of Juarez, and then Amber Takaro and Faith Hedgepath. Um, it really kind of giving visibility to this and um, I guess films to watch. Um, there's one called, if you just Google it, and it's on YouTube, it's called Finding Ashley, um, Ashley Loring Having Runner, a Native American family's desperate search for their missing relative. Um, you also have um, the search Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women by the Fault Lines on YouTube. You have Two Spirits, Fred Martino's story um, on Vimeo. He um, is a Two-Spirit Indigenous relative who was murdered. Um, we also need to make sure that we're being inclusive of our Two-Spirits and our trans kin when we're talking about this violence that is happening um, and making sure. So that's why I like to use the term missing and murdered Indigenous relatives because I feel like it is all inclusive. But we'll also say missing and murdered Indigenous women as well, because we also really want to center that this violence has been happening to our women and our girls. Um, and then you have Silent No More, you have Between the Lines, you have Indigenous Women Keep Going Missing in Montana, Searchers, Highway of Tears, you have Blackfeet Boxing, Not Invisible, and just so many resources of reports. Um, you know, Garden of Truth, the prostitution and trafficking of Native women in Minnesota, um, you know, Breaking the Silence, Starting the Conversation in Classrooms, Report on Missing and Murder Indigenous Women and Girls. Um, but I would say those are all resources that are available to you on our website, um, risinghearts.org forward slash MMIR. Um, great ways to become more informed, accounts to follow, um, and just really, really insightful. And hopefully you visit all of the orgs that we have listed and the individuals we have listed um, to be able to support them in their work. Amazing. You are on it with the resources. That was a great list. Um, I'm also <laughs> thinking I just watched a film that's amazing. It's free on YouTube. It's a beautifully shot film called Public Trust. Um, mm -hmm. More focused on the environmentalism issues, but uh, really impactful to watch. I've yeah. seen that a couple times. So um, yeah, I'll link a few of those below too, because that's really helpful. Um, and finally, you know, I wanted to talk to you about this is kind of a bigger, you know, question, I guess, but what are some of your favorite parts about being an Indigenous woman and, you know, things that you grew up on or stories that you were told? What's really stuck with you and, and makes you really proud of who you are? I think just going through my coming of age ceremony, becoming a woman, 
and getting my name, um, was just really a defining moment that helped reconnect me back to who I am and who I'm meant to be and who I'm proud to be. Because like I said, moving to Maine and experiencing racism and a hate crime and um, really wanting to just fit in, like being a kid already kind of just sucks when you're in the school system and you want to have friends, but also having darker skin and experiencing that was, you know, didn't make it any easier. Uh, but I would say having that connection in, you know, I, I took it for granted at that age, but growing up, I have seen such the importance and something I reflect back on so much and really grateful that my parents tried to raise me as traditional as possible, even while we lived away from our community. Um, that's something that I look back on and something that I want to make sure that, you know, when I have children, especially if I have um, a girl and if they identify that way, um, that they have that option too to be part of that ceremony um, and that, that, you know, coming of age is just really important. Um, so that's something that I really look back on and always, you know, helps keep me on the right track, something to reflect on. But I also just, I love our community so much that that brings me so much joy, but it also brings me so much pain from having to see how we continuously are being treated. And even as Rising Hearts and all of the work that I do outside of Rising Hearts, I try to operate with an intersectional lens and approach of, I will always care for my own people, will always be there to help out. But I also want to show up for other communities because so many other communities are being impacted by the same things that our community has been impacted by colonialism, by white supremacy, systems of oppression, racism. Um, and I want to make sure that we can show up for each other because I truly think for us to have a better future free of this violence and inequity and equality and disrespect, like I think we need to start mobilizing together and really harness the intersectional theory by Kimberly Crenshaw and start collaborating and talking to each other. And when I first became an organizer, I kind of stayed siloed within my own community, which I'm totally fine with. I, I'm sure that's how everyone kind of starts out. But then I started seeing things that were happening outside of our communities and just really like saddened that this is happening even to other people. Um, so I wanted to try and, you know, how, how can I be a better relative? That's the constant question I'm always asking myself. How can I be a good future ancestor one day? And so I really, it's made me a lot more busier taking on this more intersectional approach, but I truly think that that's how we'll get to that transformative change for a better future for our next generation and for our people today. If we start working together, being able to sit, listen and learn, unlearn and relearn and to be able to hear each other's lived experiences and how we can show up for each other and move forward together. Because I think change is gonna happen from the bottom up. It's sadly gonna have to be dependent on us, but we are in control of how our future goes. And it's our you know, opportunity to pressure those in power um, to you know, tip the scale into our favor. Um, and so I think that's also just what gives me so much joy is just the work I get to do, I get to be in community. I get to constantly learn. I know I make mistakes, I say things wrong, uh, but I think that's all part of the process. And I, I welcome anyone listening to this of who is asking themselves, how do I get involved or how do I become an advocate? You know, start small, you know, start searching the topics that you're interested in. Um, get to know who the, the experts, the, the powerful voices are within that space. How can you learn from them? Google groups within your community that are organizing about this, volunteer, 
then start showing up and how can you do more than just volunteering? How can you organize your own event um, and start speaking about it? And like I said, you're going to probably say it wrong. You're going to, um, you know, get it wrong sometimes. But as long as you're okay with that and owning it and taking accountability and, all right, how do I do this better next time? You're going to be okay in the advocate spaces because we do see that, um, we do see that commitment. We do see you trying. So don't be afraid to make a mistake or that you're going to, you know, trigger us or harm us because we're all are learning this together. And I have done that too. Um, but as long as you are committed to doing better and to listening to advice and all of that stuff, like you're going to be okay. Um, and you can inspire just one person that can make all the difference. And when we inspire enough people that are inspiring others and creating that ripple effect, we're going to have that change for a better future. And I, I, I see that work happening now. I do see that ripple effect slowly starting to happen. And it's really awesome to see. I'm so grateful that you're, you know, helping us understand that it's okay to make a mistake. And that's, I think, something that a lot of us learned over last summer with the Black Lives Matter movement going on. You know, everybody was mm -hmm. posting up a storm and I definitely, you know, posted a couple things that weren't really on the nose or just, but they sparked conversation and I was having really intimate conversations in my messages and changing my, the way that I was thinking, which was the most important thing, but we have to have the courage to make that mistake and then know that we'll be held just for making the effort and it's okay. Yeah. Like how else are exactly. we going to grow? So I really exactly. appreciate you saying that. Mm -hmm. And for those that are wanting to speak about issues that are impacting other communities and you want to show up as an ally, you know, make sure that you are never centering yourself, um, that you are there to help elevate and amplify. If you have resources and connections, you know, share those. These movements need that support. Um, and that's even, even I'm advocating for my own people, but I always have to constantly always make sure that I have community centered that it's never about me. I may look like it because I might have that platform or I may have be that voice to speak to it. But at the end of the day, anything that I talk about is always crediting the community, always talking about the work that the community collectively is doing. And when you're in it for yourself, you're not in it for the right things. Mm -hmm. Yep. So well said. Well, Jordan, I can't thank you enough for being here. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you want to touch on before we go? Thank you so much. And yes. yeah, I, I always have to end it with um, other voices that should be worth reaching out to. You got Rosalie Fish, you have Corinne Rice, Gray Cloud, you have Callie Wolf, um, you have Verna Volker of um, Native Women Running, you have, um, you know, Chelsea Luger of Welfare Culture, you have so many other incredible voices out there and I'd be happy to recommend more. Oh, I would love that. Thank you so much because I was so excited to come across you and I'm, I'm looking for more people in your community always. So I've yeah. got a couple written down, but um, thank you so much, Jordan. And then um, where can people connect with you on social media and stuff? Yeah, you can follow me on Instagram at native in underscore LA and you can follow my organization rising hearts at rising underscore hearts. And if you want to reach out to us, you can go to info at rising-hearts.org or visit www.risinghearts.org and www.jordanmariedaniel.com. Perfect. Nailed it. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> Have a beautiful rest of your day. And uh, Thank you. You too. 
right, you guys, thank you so much for being here and hanging out with us today. I hope that you're feeling empowered and that you have some steps in mind so that you can bring more attention and bring a voice to the Native American community. Maybe that means, you know, following some new people on social media and sharing your platform uh, to bring attention to the indigenous community and uh, what they need right now, um, which is really just our support and uh, you know, broadening this conversation and bringing visibility to their struggle and their joy and highlighting their joy as well. So that's really important. Um, again, you can find Jordan on Instagram at native in underscore LA and Jordan Marie Daniel is her website. And uh, I'm at Helen Denham underscore on Instagram and HelenDenham.com is my site. And uh, there is merch on the site now. I'm so excited. <laughs> There's t-shirts and hats out, which are really fun. And uh, my course is available too, of course. It's Cultivating Confidence. It's a self-mastery course with eight modules. So if you're interested in uh, kind of up-leveling and taking yourself to the next best version of you, check that out. Uh, there's lots of information on my website, but uh, I'm sending you so much love. Thank you again for being here and I'll talk to you soon. Thank you.